thank you sangam talks for hosting this uh, event uh, good morning good evening everyone it's my pleasure to talk to all of you i am going to make this as conversational as i can uh, that's why i'm not using any powerpoint or anything uh, so let me start with a little bit little bit of background here uh, i wrote this book what every hindu should know about christianity in 2014 so why at all write a book like this uh, after all you know christianity is a well known religion that's what most people think so in that case what is the reason for writing a book like this the reason for writing this book is twofold number one i don't believe uh, hindus a vast majority of hindus understand christianity for what it is and number two question is um, it's not just about understanding a religion it's also understanding and analyzing its impact on our society on hindu society so is the impact of christianity on hindu society on india beneficial or is it harmful and i have analyzed this for several years i have studied christianity for many years i have studied its history and i have come to the conclusion that most of the hindus do not understand christianity for what it is and number 2 the impact of christianity on society has been mostly harmful there have been some positive impacts but for the most part in the 17 18 19 hundred years of christian history it has been a terribly harmful impact we can talk a few of those things uh, one of that is how christianity destroyed pagan civilization and all the philosophies of the greco roman world so in the initial eras of christianity which is the first three centuries of the common era christianity was still a very fledgling religion and it coexisted with lot of pagan religions Uh, what we call the greco-roman philosophies uh, greco-roman popular religions etc christianity coexisted with them however not with the intent of coexisting the coexistence was merely a matter of compulsion because the christians did not have the numbers so it operated mostly as a secret sect it operated mostly among the illiterate people but over a period of time as it uh, ascended uh, as it gained social dominance Christianity started cracking down on all of the pagan philosophers all the pagan temples went about destroying them burnt and destroyed their libraries and even burnt alive uh, some of their philosophers a good example is Hypatia Hypatia was a, a Greco-Roman philosopher and she was uh, uh, considered a very wise woman and a very influential philosopher we do not have any of her books surviving today but she was flayed and killed by the Christian mobs so Christianity went about destroying what we call the Greco-Roman philosophy, their sciences, you know, their uh, plurality of uh, worship. They were very accommodating because in most of the places, you know, they would worship their own gods and goddesses, but then they will respect every other god and goddess of other tribes. That has been the general pagan philosophy. That's how Christianity spread. And when Christianity spread, it also ushered in the Dark Ages. That would stay for the next 1000 years or so in europe and uh, it was so bad in europe that during the dark ages uh, islamic countries turned out to be uh, what we call the islamic countries today uh, which is the arab countries they turned out to be a lot more intellectual and they preserved some of the intellectual traditions compared to europe then a series of uh, crusades and inquisitions were carried out against the non believers and then the victims have run into millions if you take the americas for example uh, christianity has been primarily responsible for uh, unleashing uh, genocide of native americans for the simple reason they were non believers and hence they were treated as 
subhumans. And we'll see that a lot of these kind of teachings come from the New Testament, which is the Christian scripture, and some of them attributable to the words of Jesus himself. Then uh, the genocide of Native Americans was so extensive that um, as much as 90, 95% of the population was exterminated over the last five or six centuries. Then the next example, next impact of Christianity, we can look at what we call the gypsy people or the Roma people. Gypsy is considered as a derogatory term. So we'll use the word Roma for that. So the Roma people originated from India. So mostly in and around what we call Haryana, Punjab region of India today. So they were initially taken as captives by the Muslim invaders uh, in the 8th, 9th, 10th centuries. And then they were taken and they were sold into slavery in the slave markets of Baghdad, the slave markets of uh, Central Asia, and then finally they make it to Europe. And then in Europe, they were treated as uh, outcasts. They were treated as people uh, who are inimical to Christianity by the Christian church and by the Christian population. They were vilified and then they were systematically oppressed. So this started in the 12th or 13th century and it continued all the way up to the 20th century when more than half a million Roma people were exterminated in the gas chambers of the Third Reich by the Nazis. The next example we should pay attention to is the way Christianity has treated the Jewish people. So Christianity, for example, if you look at the Bible, Jesus says that the devil is the father of Jews. He calls them a brood of vipers. Okay, he, and then the Bible says all generations of Jews are cursed for the alleged crime of killing Jesus. So with all of these things, the Christian uh, laity were prepared by the Christian clergy over the last two millennia into hating the Jews, into treating the Jews as someone who is accursed. So as a result of that, the Jews were repeatedly ghettoized in all of Europe, and then they were systematically targeted during the Crusades. And finally, when uh, the so-called Reformation movement happened within Christianity, uh, the likes of Martin Luther uh, wrote tracts like on the Jews and their lives. So where Martin Luther, the Protestant theologian and the founder of Protestantism, he talks about, uh, he calls for burning the schools and the synagogues of the Jews, okay? And he calls for killing them, okay? So this was the mindset that was propagated by Christianity against the Jews. And finally, when uh, the Third Reich uh, takes over, when Hitler and the Nazis take over, they subsidize and they publish the writings of Martin Luther, and they subsidized and published the Bible all across Germany. And uh, then they are, not all of them are necessarily practicing Christians, but the anti-Semitism or the hatred of Jews had been nurtured for nearly two millennia. So as a result of that, the Nazis are primarily motivated by this Christian hatred of Jews. And Hitler would quote the same words of Jesus. He would also call the Jews, the devil is the father of Jews. Those are the words spoken by Jesus. The next example we can look at, and this would be the last example, uh, is that of the uh, African people or the black people. So the black people were uh, initially enslaved by the uh, Muslims, and then they were enslaved by the Christians. But uh, Christians had a much longer history of enslaving them and taking them across the Atlantic and selling them into uh, slavery, etc., and then literally treating them like animals. So to give a few examples, uh, you know, uh, uh, they were taken to both North and South America. And in North America, uh, Protestant Christians did not have direct access to the source of the slave market in Africa. So they were depending upon 
countries like Portugal and Spain to import the slaves. And then over a period of time, something like three centuries, they imported 12 plus million slaves into the Americas. So the ones that came into North America, uh, those slaves are expensive, mainly because the North Americans did not have direct access to the slave market. And as a result, uh, they did not want their slaves to die. Okay, they were treated like dirt, but they were relatively well-fed compared to the slaves that had been taken to South America. However, they were not recognized as human beings. And more importantly, the Protestant uh, Christians did not recognize the marriage among the black slaves. So which means if you are a black slave and then you are married, your child could be forcibly taken away from you and separated. So this is what destroyed the black family system over a period of time. And in South America, it was worse. So there, uh, you know, th those countries are ruled either by Portugal or by Spain, and they had direct access to the slave market, and they literally starved their slaves to death. They worked them to death. So Lloyd Thompson is a Nigerian academic, and he has written a number of books, and you can just search for him or look up my writings, uh, where I give a lot of references. I don't want to distract with citing references at this stage. So Lloyd Thompson talks about his a black academic himself. He's a Nigerian academic who also uh, spent a lot of years in the University of London. And then uh, he's a very distinguished and well-known academic. And he talks about the nature of slavery that existed in the Greco-Roman world and the nature of slavery that was introduced by Christianity. The difference is this. In the Greco-Roman world, it was not racially motivated. They could go and enslave a German. They could go and enslave an Ethiopian. They could go and enslave a Bulgarian. It did not matter. So they were simply taken as conquerors in a war, and then they were brought into the Greco-Roman world, and then they were used as slaves. And more importantly, it was not racial, because a lot of writers like Pliny talk about the local uh, Roman women marrying or, have, or having an affair with a black slave and having a child out of them. And this was openly cited. This need not be hidden by them, and this was openly cited. So in other words, what we find is, Slavery in Greco-Roman world was not racially motivated and it was not debilitating because they could still integrate within a short span of time with, main, with mainstream society. In contrast, in the Christian world, uh, Christianity considered black skin as curse from God. This was what was taught to the Christians over 17, 1800 years. And hence, the black people were treated as accursed along the same lines as the Jewish people. The Jews were accursed because they allegedly killed Jesus in crucifixion, and the blacks were accursed because of their skin. So the racial uh, skin color-based uh, racism and slavery was introduced by Christianity. And in the Bible, Jesus and others, they keep repeatedly telling that a slave should behave. A slave should obey the master. A slave should never rebel. And then uh, only when a slave obeys the master, uh, then, you know, he can make it to heaven. So all of these teachings were, uh, or there in the Bible, they were taught by Jesus, okay, and the church propagated these teachings for 17, 1800 years, and that's what resulted in the plight of the black people. I said, no more example, but I should talk about India. So India was once again a victim of uh, Christian colonization for more than 250 years, a little longer if you considered the Portuguese and then the Dutch invasions of India. So the Portuguese carried out an inquisition of Goa. Okay, so, uh, you know, uh, Priyolka has written a really good book on that. And uh, when you get a chance, you should consult that. And he has written a really good book. And then uh, it's Xavier, who's called Saint by the Christians. Uh, he asks for inquisition. And then 
but in his time he couldn't get inquisition and but soon after he dies inquisition is launched and uh, but Xavier himself goes about demolishing the temples and he is proud of that and then he persecutes Hindus but when the inquisition started the persecution of Hindus was widespread and deep all over Goa in the Portuguese territory and uh, the British Christians uh, uh, carried out uh, they were inspired by uh, the Christian teachings into treating Hindus as subhuman beings and then they repeatedly targeted uh, uh, Hindus uh, with various famines okay and uh, you know uh, um, uh, they unleashed famines intentionally and one of the really good books on the subject is uh, uh, by uh, madhushri mukherjee uh, it's called churchill secret war and then over a period of time there is one uh, famine we all know of which is the 1943 famine of bengal in which uh, roughly 4 million people that's the official figure the actual figure could have been upwards of 7 million uh, 4 million uh, bengalis were killed in a matter of 3 to 4 months okay so this is this is not even known to most of the indians but this is what christianity did to us because the, one of the motivations for them was racism and colonialism another motivation was uh, christian upbringing okay so they were taught to look at us as heathen they were taught to look at us as uh, people uh, who are not human beings at all and this is the reason i believe the christianity's impact on mankind has been terrible it has been very harmful we'll talk about some of the spiritual impacts towards the end of my speech but this is the reason why i believe every hindu should pay attention to christianity if our society is going to be converted to christianity tomorrow what would be the impact that's the first reason we should pay attention to christianity so let's start with the origins of christianity how did it all begin so for that you know the traditional account is christianity came into existence about 2000 years ago when jesus was born however the traces of christianity uh, go back a little anterior to that okay so it starts around 100 150 bce okay and uh, there are two really good books uh, one by professor oliver elagard the other one is by professor daniel boyerin but the one i am going to talk to you about is professor daniel boyerin's book today okay uh, he is or was a professor at uh, uc berkeley uh, university of california berkeley and then he wrote a really good book called the jewish gospels the story of the jewish christ and then the entire story is about uh, what happened around 100 150 bce all of what we call israel today was caught up in an apocalyptic fever and what does it mean apocalypse means the end of the world so at that time the jewish people are a subjugated people they were colonized by rome and then there was an expectation among the jews that the messiah or the savior would return very soon he was the jewish savior and then he will destroy defeat the enemies destroy them and then he will usher in a new rule and they also had very interesting stories and then uh, these stories were one of the suffering dying and the resurrected messiah so these are called midrash so midrash or most mostly tales written on the book of daniel or commentaries written on the book of daniel in the hebrew bible or the old testament and then in this they talk about a messiah who would be born very soon and then who would be persecuted by the romans who would be crucified and who would be resurrected 3 days later so this was written about 100 to 150 years uh, bc before the common era so there is even a tablet that was uh, discovered 
and uh, uh, you know it, it's it's uh, i i put all the references in my uh, book but then if uh, uh, sangam talks words i can I, i can send all the references you can also add those to the uh, subtitle okay so uh, there was also a tablet that was discovered which talks about the messiah who was crucified and then the messiah who resurrected 3 days later and then this messiah is not jesus this happens about 100 150 years before uh, uh, the arrival of jesus okay so this is the origin of christianity the origin of christianity happens in uh, milo in which the jewish people had been subjugated in israel by the roman and then they were looking they were anticipating the arrival of a messiah or a savior who would defeat the enemies and who will revive the jewish kingdom and this messiah would be persecuted would be crucified and then would be then resurrected 3 days later and then he will then come back and usher in the kingdom of god and this belief was inherited by the christians that's why you will find in the bible uh, jesus talks about the apocalypse so if you look at mark chapter 8 uh, towards the end of chapter 8 verse 36 37 onwards all the way up to the beginning of chapter 9 in mark you talk you you find jesus jesus says the apocalypse and the second coming of jesus will happen very soon he says this will happen before the generation of his audience ended okay. that's like 25 to 30 years okay so he expected the second coming of jesus to happen and what would happen during the second coming during the second coming uh, jesus uh, would come and uh, carry out what is called tribulation okay so uh, there will be judgment of non believers and the non believers will be uh, persecuted they'll be tortured alive for 5 months on earth so that means all of us hindus including our children will be persecuted will be tortured all of this is in the book of revelation and then will be tortured for 5 months and then will be slaughtered then will be put on the hellbound cargo post mortem will be taken to hell and there will be persecuted for eternity so this is the core of christian beliefs during the second coming of jesus all non believers will be tortured and then uh, we'll be taken uh, to hell where we'll be tortured for eternity and some of the jew uh, christian theologian uh, thomas aquinas for example he writes one of the greatest pleasures of christian when they reach heaven would be to watch from the comforts of heaven the torment that non believers undergo in hell so this has been a very core christian belief and the second coming of jesus is not a fringe belief this is at the very root of christianity there is no christianity without the belief in second coming of jesus so we have talked so much about jesus until now what do we know about jesus from the new testament the answer is almost nothing so according to christianity jesus lived for roughly 30 years but we know nothing about the life of jesus for the first 28 or 29 years and why is that because you start with what is called the nativity stories the nativity stories are about the miraculous birth of jesus but uh, they are not consistent across all the gospels okay uh, each gospel tells a slightly different story but let's not get into that uh, we talk about the miraculous birth of jesus where uh, the virgin mary uh, does not have sexual intercourse with any man but then she is impregnated by the uh, holy spirit okay through the agent of uh, which is the agent of god and then jesus comes into existence okay and it falls forward then you know we have the story of the three um, uh, magi uh, or uh, priests who are coming there and again again this story comes from uh, egyptian 
uh, uh, hieroglyphs, okay, and then which go back to 2000 BCE. So anyway, so that's all we know about the childhood of Jesus. There is nothing more except that, you know, uh, Jesus was miraculously born and fast forward, okay. Then around the time Jesus is 11 or 12, there is one incident quoted where Jesus is precautious, he debates the rabbi in a synagogue, okay, and then he impresses everyone and they move on. Only one incident, right, one passing incident. Now, except these two, there is nothing about the life of Jesus, which is very curious because when you look at every historical figure, uh, you will find a lot of stories about them from their childhood because the followers try to collect that information. All of them gets into hagiography. They collect this information and throughout the life of that person, you know, those information get added. Okay. So take somebody, it's not even for religious figures, even for historical figures. Take someone like Mohandas Gandhi. Okay. We know a lot about him. Okay. Because after he became famous, uh, then his followers collected all the information about his family life, what he did uh, in school, in college, uh, where did he go to study, uh, become a barrister in UK. Then he goes to South Africa, comes back to Mumbai and starts uh, his campaign against the British. All of these are documented. But what you also find is a rich library of information about his personal interaction. That's what people record. Nothing when it comes to Jesus. Then it all happens towards the end, the last one and a half years or so of his life, where he gets baptized by John the Baptist. Then, you know, he comes, he goes for 40 days into uh, the forest where he's tempted by the Satan and all these things. And then he comes riding on a donkey into Jerusalem during uh, the Passover festival. Then, uh, you know, he overturns the tables in the synagogue. And then finally he is dragged and then he is uh, crucified. Okay. So now if you look at it, this is only a theological story, which is a reflection of what I cited earlier, you know, uh, what Daniel Boyden has summarized about what happened 150 years or 100 years uh, in Israel before Jesus was born. Okay, there was a belief in the arrival of the Messiah that the Messiah would be persecuted by the ruling powers and then he'll be crucified and then he would be resurrected three days later. The same story is told for Jesus. Okay, that's why you don't find any historical, any personal details at all. So, in other words, we know almost nothing about Jesus. If we were to look at the New Testament, do we have other sources that talk about Jesus? Nothing contemporary. Okay. There is no contemporary source that talks about Jesus, even though he is supposed to have been a very celebrated uh, preacher. Okay. And in fact, you would expect a lot of those references in the first century. Uh, for example, uh, Pliny the Younger, uh, Suetonius, Tacitus, and Celsus. All of them in the first 100 to 150 years write a lot about what happened to history and the different historical persona in that region, in that period. Uh, they know nothing about Jesus. For example, Pliny the Younger, he writes around 112 CE. That itself is late, way too late because Jesus is supposed to have died around 30. Uh, nothing. And then Pliny the Younger mentions about Christians but knows nothing about Jesus. Okay, So you can have Christians without a Jesus. Okay, so that's uh, not impossible. There are a lot of uh, religions that have been founded based on mythical characters. Then Suetonius talks about Jewish riots under Caligula. But once again, that cannot be about Christians because this uh, riot happens somewhere between 41 and 54. Uh, that's uh, way beyond the time of Jesus. Because according to Suetonius, this mob of Jews was led by a person named Christus. Okay, so that cannot be Jesus. Then Tacitus, talks about the persecution of Christians by Nero. Okay. Nero ruled in the, in the 60s, whereas Tacitus writes around 120 CE. And this is considered by most people, most scholars as a forgery okay, by later day Christians, because early Christians 
do not talk about the persecution of Christians by Nero at all. Okay, Justin Martyr, Origin, and all of these guys, they write extensively about that. They don't talk about that. Okay, so it is believed that UCBS or somebody should have forged and attributed this to uh, Tacitus. Celsus, once again, writes around 170 CE. Uh, he's a critic and a philosopher. He's a strong critic of Christianity. And then he talks about different gospels, but he's not aware of the four canonical gospels. Luke, Mark, Matthew, John. He's not aware of those at all. So until 170 CE, the picture we get is a lot of the Christian story, you know, the life of Jesus, the gospels, they were all getting return and re-return over a period of time. Okay. So there was a lot of debate going on. Professor Bartirman has written a lot about that and he comes to a conclusion. The earliest fairly complete manuscript of New Testament is only from the fourth century. Until that time, a lot of these things, they happen uh, very gradually. So where do we get the life of Jesus? For that, we have to turn to another really good academic. His name is Alan Dundas. He once again taught at uh, UC Berkeley. And then he wrote a uh, chapter called The Hero Pattern and Life of Jesus. Okay, That was in a book called In Quest of the Hero, edited by R.A. Segal and others. And there he talks about... Uh, 22 archetypes that made a messiah or that made a savior or that made a god in the Greco-Roman world. This was not so much in the uh, Jewish world, but this was in the Greco-Roman world because Christianity, as you would all be aware, really did not take roots among the Jews. Okay, There may have been a few early Jewish converts, but then it did not take roots among the Jewish people. It did not take roots in what is Palestine or Israel. It took roots only in the Greco-Roman world. Okay, especially in the eastern part of the empire and subsequently in Rome. So, uh, Alan Dundas talks about the hero pattern and he takes about 22 archetypes, including virgin birth of a god, uh, you know, uh, the persecution, including crucifixion, then the resurrection of God and all of these things, which are common beliefs among the pagans. And when Christianity is taken to the pagans of the Greco-Roman world, uh, they have to now tell a story that is palatable to the pagan people of the Greco-Roman world. That's why they start introducing these stories of, oh, by the way, Jesus was born of a virgin, uh, just like your pagan gods, okay? Because otherwise they would challenge, okay? How come, you know, your God was born of ordinary parents? Because all of our gods are born supernaturally to virgins. So they invented the same story. Then the story of persecution, the story of resurrection, all of these are invented. So in other words, you don't need a historical Jesus at all. You can explain the origins, the birth, and then the sustenance of Christianity through a completely mythical Jesus. Then in the initial three to four centuries of Christianity, you do not find one Christianity. You find a diverse set of Christianities. Okay, some of them were later on called heretical and some of them were called Gnostic Christianities. They did not believe in a historical Jesus. They did not think that Jesus was a flesh, blood and bones person. They thought of him as some kind of a supernatural person. Then uh, there were a few other Gospels uh, written by the Gnostics. They talked about Jesus not getting crucified. Okay, Instead, Simon, the Kyrene, uh, the Kyrenian, he was crucified by in, in the place of Jesus. And Jesus is laughing at uh, Simon as he gets crucified. Okay, So these are some of the very interesting stories that were told by the heretical Gospels. And they had different sets of teachings. And one of them was in the Gospel of the Egyptians, which origin. Uh, sites in the late 2nd, early 3rd century, in that 
Jesus is telling his followers, eat of every herb, but do not eat of the one that is bitter. The bitter herb is sex. Okay. So from the very earliest period, both in the heretical gospels as well as in the four canonical gospels, what we find, or even in the writings of the epistles of Paul, what we find is a very negative attitude towards sex in all of Christian teachings. Jesus expresses a very negative attitude. Paul expresses a very negative attitude. The general belief was better to avoid sex because remember, Christianity is an apocalyptic religion. They expected the world to come to an end very soon, okay, uh, which was in and around the time of Jesus itself, within 30 years or so from the day Jesus was preaching. So they thought, uh, they had a very oppressive attitude towards sex, but they also thought sex was uh, not necessary because all that is needed is having the belief in Jesus so that you'll be saved when the second coming of Jesus happens. So in a nutshell, uh, until this point, Christianity in the first four centuries originates not with the birth of Jesus, but 100 to 150 years before that. Okay, in the Jewish concept of the rising and uh, the dying and rising Messiah, then it is infused with a lot of concepts from the pagan world. So the first three centuries or so, Christianity undergoes a lot of revisions. And then the earliest uh, fairly complete manuscript of New Testament is only from the fourth century. And then the early uh, writers from the pagan or the Jewish philosophers know nothing about the four gospels until probably the second century or so, late second century or so. However, in the fourth century, some of the core beliefs of Christianity uh, become canonized. Okay, so they now become creed that everyone has to profess this and everyone has to subscribe to this. So uh, this is called the Nicene Creed. This was, you know, uh, put in place by Constantine, the first convert to Christianity. And then some of the core beliefs can be summarized in five bullet points. Uh, one is there is only one God and who is also the Trinity and whose son is Jesus. And then all human beings are born in original sin. Okay, so original sin is a very important concept in Christianity. Okay, so uh, according to the Bible, uh, Adam and Eve were tempted by the snake. And then there was a talking snake, it tempted them. And then they ate the fruit of the tree of knowledge. And hence, they lost their innocence okay and that became a sin okay so this should be very strange to most of us hindus okay because uh, one eating from the tree of knowledge what does it mean it means acquiring discriminative knowledge this is what hinduism buddhism jainism and lot of other religions and if you are an atheist then you would also be seeking discriminatory knowledge okay because you should use rationality and the tools of reason to evaluate anything and understand the phenomenon but this is considered a sinful activity in christianity and the way out of this original sin is accepting Jesus. And Jesus was born of a virgin. He was crucified. And then uh, through his crucifixion, he redeems all of the believers from original sin. But you get believed from original sin only by professing your belief in Jesus and getting baptized in his name. And then a believer will be redeemed and then uh, have an enjoy an, an eternal life in heaven. Whereas a non-believer will be tormented in hell forever. So what happens to non-believers? If you are a non-believer, it's not as if you will be just ignored, right? Jesus would return. It's called the second coming. He will torture non-believers for five months on earth. Then believers would crush the non-believers. This is what 
the bible teaches it teaches uh, that the believers will smash non believers into pieces like pot sherds so there will be physical violence directed at all of us non believers then uh, five months of torture on earth is not enough then we'll be tortured will be burnt in hell fire for eternity after that and jesus generally had a very negative attitude towards non believers and other races so remember he was born into the jewish race and then he considered all non jews to be dogs and swine so there is an episode in mark chapter 7 it starts around verse 24 goes on until verse 30 that you know jesus is a faith healer okay so in those days uh, you know medicine was very primitive so a lot of that was you know if you were ill uh, especially psych- psychological illness you were thought of being possessed by uh, demon right so and then faith healers will come and cure you so in some form or fashion those faith faith healers were uh, the proto version of the doctors we have today so jesus is a faith healer in that particular verse and then a non believer woman she is not a christian she is a pagan woman she comes to jesus because her daughter is terribly sick okay the nature of sickness is not articulated but assume that to be some kind of psychological illness okay and she is dying she comes to jesus and says master heal my daughter and jesus says no my healing powers are only for my children who are the jews it's not for dogs okay and the dogs is a reference to non jewish people here okay so jesus considered us dogs just like early christianity and throughout its life christianity taught the black people were cursed because of the skin color the jews were cursed uh, because they allegedly crucified jesus it also teaches that all non jewish people uh, were no better than animals then the woman submits herself okay uh, you know uh, her predicament is pitiable because her child is dying and then here is a racist uh jesus what does she do so she she submits she says even dogs deserve bread crumbs that fall off the table where the children are eating meaning uh, you know the leftovers okay please at least give us the leftovers okay then jesus uh, you know appreciates her faith and then uh, you know uh, treats the child okay so jesus considered uh, non believers also to be swine so sermon on the mount okay sermon on the mount is uh, you know uh, glorified by gandhi and lot of others who have not really read the sermon right and the sermon uh, is not only a pretty uh, mediocre sermon but most importantly it is a sermon full of hate so in that uh, jesus says don't scatter the pearls in front of the swine he is telling his followers these teachings are secret okay don't ever share these with the non believers because they are swine so this is the fundamental belief that christianity uh, inculcated in the minds of believers towards non believers towards other races this is what resulted in the subjugation of hindus the subjugation of native americans blacks jewish people uh, roma and everyone throughout the history this is why you know one of the richest countries in the on the planet india was turned into one of the poorest when the british ruled and left india so christianity's effect on society has been terrible and this is one of the reason why hindus should really pay attention to what christianity is uh, understand that religion and then uh, uh, respond to that in the most appropriate manner so but now turning a little bit from the historical side to the spiritual side what are the real differences between christianity and hinduism the first one is the absence of dogma okay 
uh, dogma is very central to Christianity. I talked about Nicene Creed. If you don't profess the Nicene Creed, then you are not a Christian. Okay, you have to profess your faith. You have to proclaim your faith, and then you have to propagate your faith. All those three are requirements for a Christian. You cannot challenge. You cannot critically examine Christian faith, uh, articles of faith. So Christianity is dogmatic, and a dogmatic religion is the opposite of a reasonable philosophy or a re reasonable religious system or even a reasonable belief system. So a dogma is based on faith that cannot be questioned, that cannot be challenged. In contrast, uh, Hinduism is not based on any dogma. Hinduism does not have a single scripture. It has multiple scriptures. Always the analogy I make, it's not my own analogy. I think I first heard it from a speaker by the name Sashi K. Jriwal, and he makes a very good contrast. He says Christianity is a religion of a single book. Hinduism is a religion of a library of books. Okay, And hence, when you walk into a library of books, what you find is uh, the books need not necessarily agree with one another. Sometimes they are diametrically opposite to one another. But it's up to you to take those and use your tools of reason to read, understand, and then form your own perception. So absence of dogma is the first contrast between Hinduism and Christianity. Second, we saw that Christianity has a very negative attitude towards sex. Okay, and that continued until even the 1950s. In fact, the Western world discovers female orgasm only in the 1950s. Okay, whereas uh, Eastern world or the pagan world knew about all these things for more than 2000 years. If you look at the Kama Sutra and other texts, they talk about female orgasm and uh, then, uh, which was not known to the West until the 1950s. So the reason for that, Christianity uh, considered sex to be sinful, sinful. And then a woman uh, who uh, enjoyed orgasm was considered to be possessed by the demon. Okay, and hence she had to be treated. And uh, a woman was treated until the 1950s in the Western world for having indulging in sexual pleasure. So in Hinduism, uh, sex, on the other hand, is considered something sacred. Okay, we, we have four purusharthas or goals of life. Dharma, okay, which is hard to translate into English, but it is that which guides everything, every other purushartha, every other pursuit. And it is it is righteousness, it is harmony, it is the pursuit of truth, it's the pursuit of happiness, everything. Morality, all of that falls under dharma. So dharma is the first purushartha. The second purushartha is artha. Artha is the pursuit of wealth, pursuit of knowledge that's necessary for our well-being in this world. Third one is kama. Kama is sacred sexuality. So sacred sexuality is very important in Hinduism. Uh, you know, it is divine. That's why our uh, divine figures are portrayed as uh, having sex, okay, having children, okay, and then uh, sexuality is also beautifully uh, woven into our religion because uh, even starting from marriage, starting from, uh, you know, getting pregnant, it's called Garbhadana Samskara, okay, you know, you don't uh, just like that go and have a, a child, it's considered as something sacred. Okay, and then the raising of the child, and then everything uh, throughout the life, your sexuality is considered as something sacred. That's why, even if you look at the Tamil philosophical text, Tirukural, it has uh, three different uh, categories, right? The one for Dharma, one dedicated for Artha, one dedicated for Kama. And implicitly, if you do all these things right, then you attain Moksha. Okay, so then the quest for self realization, which is very, very central to Hinduism. Okay, so it is not mandatory. This is the beauty of Hinduism. Uh, you know, if you want to just indulge in this life and if you want to just reincarnate time and again, you can do that. Okay. 
okay nobody is going to curse you for that okay you're not accursed because you want to enjoy your life you can very well do that however there will also come a time uh, you may start contemplating okay what is the nature of reality okay what is this atman okay so uh, is there a different reality from what i have experienced that's when you indulge in philosophy that's why you come up with different schools of philosophy like yoga like vedanta everything i'm not going to into any discussion of those things now but whether it is hinduism whether it's buddhism jainism and other religions or even taoism and all these religions of china and then zen buddhism in japan and other places what you find very common is a quest for self realization okay so th- these we are fundamentally seekers okay uh, uh, we are not looking for dogma we are not looking for revelation we are looking for uh, some self realization and this is not unique hindu salon when you go to the native americans you have the ayahuasca tradition okay where you know they go through the ayahuasca right and then they experience the divine okay this can be found across the globe and it is christianity that first started killing all of these things okay the uh, self realization and self realization is a beautiful thing because it's only not about realizing a nature of realities above and beyond what we experience in this temporal world but even more importantly when you take something like uh, psilocybin uh, a mushroom okay and then you pursue an entheogenic trip using that or you indulge in dmt based entheogenic trip and generally ganja or marijuana is not considered entheogenic but i would debate that i think in the hands of the right practitioner uh, ganja which you know the ayurveda text call vijaya right it's a sacred herb that's why you go to shivji ka mandir it's called uh, shivji ka mahaprasad okay and then it is given okay so uh, you can use all of these things and you can start uh, getting into a contemplative state okay which is uh, also realized in kundalini yoga in different forms of pranayama and other things okay where you can start uh, searching for nirvikalpa samadhi or moksha and all of these experiences so the self realization what it also does is uh, neuroscience is now um, uh, understanding this better and better okay so one of the good books uh, on the subject is uh, waking up by sam harris and uh, there he talks about he's a neuroscientist as well as a philosopher with good understanding of advaita and uh, buddhism and he talks a lot about that and one of the things he touches upon is the effect uh, this has uh, the pursuit the entheogenic pursuits or the quest for self realization has on your neural network in your brain okay how it helps us calm down and how it how it helps us form perspectives that we do not normally get okay and this is completely absent in christianity and not only is it absent christianity is opposed to all of these things because it's a dogmatic religion the only way you get saved is by accepting jesus as your savior and everything else is denounced that's why you'll find the pope or pastors and others they'll denounce yoga because yoga takes you within it's adhyatmik okay it's an inner quest for self realization whereas christianity is anything but inner quest for self realization final reason hinduism cannot and christianity cannot coexist not because of hinduism hindus have always been welcoming of other religions christians believe that christianity came to india something like 1900 years ago when thomas uh, allegedly came to india and of course that's not true okay thomas did not come to india and uh, 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 you know uh, there might have been uh, thomas didymus uh, you know who was a syrian trader who might have come to india in the 5th 6th century but we do not know much about him and there is no historical evidence that he ever came to india but what we know is 
sometime in the 8th or the 9th century you start finding the presence of christian traders with iranian names okay they come from the sasanian empire okay coming to india those are the earliest uh, evidence of christians in india but we know that by the 12th century or the 13th century and marco polo visits india there is a christian presence there's a local christian community in kerala so historically christianity has been in india for anywhere from 900 to 1200 years but christians believe it has been here for 2000 years and hindus always welcome christianity okay we allowed christianity to thrive and survive and uh, we did not try to convert them okay this is true of how hindus have treated the jews uh, because there's a thriving jewish community in india how we have treated the zoroastrians because the zoroastrians come to india in the 8th or 9th century and you know they thrive in the western part of india and then same with muslims okay uh, hindus did not bother to try to reconvert uh, muslims and they allowed islam to flourish so hinduism by definition allows other religions to coexist but christianity does not seek coexistence it is seeking the complete destruction of hinduism not only the hindu philosophies and practices but also the hindu people if you do not accept jesus as your savior during the second coming of jesus jesus will torture us kill our children after torturing them for 5 months on earth and then torture us for eternity in hell this is the reason hindus and uh, hinduism and christianity cannot coexist the reason is christianity does not seek coexistence and when somebody does not seek coexistence that's where we cannot extend tolerance to that person because everything is based on the criterion of reciprocity and when they don't want to coexist all we have to do is then start examining christianity and like we did in the last 30 or 40 minutes uh, christianity is a pretty harmful religion uh, christianity uh, is against reason and it spreads hatred racism and demagoguery of non believers and for all of these reasons and christianity plunged the world into dark ages and if it continues today and you know just before the conversation started tanya ji and i were talking about uh, the zeal of a neo convert okay so the western world is coming out of christianity you know western europe uh, you know after christianity sank western europe into dark ages for nearly 1000 years it is now out of christianity okay at least the majority of western europe uh, the us is a mixed bag uh, there are conservatives and there are liberals but to a good extent they are coming out of christianity too however when christians succeed in exporting christianity which is being discarded in the west they export it to asia they export it to uh, africa and uh, south america what happens a new generation generation of people are converted they are turned into zealots okay and then they are turned into fanatics and then it will take several generations if at all we are lucky because uh, richard dawkins points out uh, that even in uk only 12% of those who are raised as christians abandon the religion and come out of the religion so that means uh, you know when they if christianity succeeds uh, in converting large number of hindus then it will take several generations for us to come out of that superstition to some of come out of that hatred the demagoguery and all that and that means there will be a complete loss of different uh, knowledge systems of hinduism including those that lead to self realization including the samadhi experience including yoga pranayama and all of these things and for these reasons we should recognize christianity as a threat and then we should come up with means to fight and eradicate christianity and i want to qualify this statement when i say eradicate christianity what i mean is 
get rid of the ideology of Christianity and save Christians from Jesus. We should be the real saviors. Christians do deserve to enjoy a religion uh, that's enriching, en enjoy, follow a divine being who is not a racist, who is not a demagogue, who is not a hate monger. And uh, uh, they also deserve uh, to pursue self-realization, including yoga, including pranayama, including different entheogenic experiences, and then uh, enjoy life in its fullest. And more importantly, they also deserve to indulge in uh, karma as one of the purusharthas. And karma in Hinduism is not just about uh, what happens within the bedroom of a couple. Okay, So if you look at some of our sacred arts, for example, uh, Bharatanatyam, Okay, you have different bhava, okay, and then uh, one of them is uh, different rasa, and one of those is shringara rasa, okay, which is sensuality, and then the pining for the lover, and that lover could even be divine. Okay, a lot of times you'll find the dance use will be pining for uh, Shiva or Krishna, and then uh, expressions of sexuality. All of these things are deeply permeating our Hindu culture, our Hindu art, and everything. And Christians too deserve to enjoy these things. And for all of these things, for all of these reasons, we should eradicate Christianity as an ideology and save Christians from Jesus and launch Garvapsi. With that, I'll conclude my speech and I'm open to any questions. As you said, uh, Kalavaiji, that there are some ancient references or old references to uh, Jesus. What I uh, came across was there was this uh, disputation of Paris in uh, 1240 AD, uh, which is also known as the trial of the uh, Jewish Talmud, which is the sacred book. And uh, this was the first uh, censorship that was done of the Talmud was in 521 CE. Uh, so basically, uh, uh, why uh, this Nicholas Donin, who was a Jew who converted to Christianity, the Franciscan order, uh, he he uh, he put this case against uh, you know the Christian uh, I mean the Jewish Talmud towards uh, in front of the Pope there that uh, the the Talmud which is you know the really old uh, version of the Talmud he says that uh, it puts across these few points about Jesus one it says that uh, I mean the Jewish sacred Talmud used to say that Jesus was the legitimate son born out of an affair between a Roman soldier, Tiberius Julius Abdes Pentera, and Mary. Uh, that was one thing it said. The second was, uh, Mary was considered uh, uh, a lady of uh, low character. And she was, I think, there in a salon or a hair cutting kind of a thing. And Jesus uh, was a sorcerer um, who brought fish and bread uh, out of, you know, baskets to uh, feed people. And then one more thing that was written there was that a Roman convert to Judaism supposedly summons the tormented spirit of Jesus who wanted to harm Israel. The spirit of Jesus tells uh, this Roman convert to Judaism that as a punishment in the afterlife, he is boiling in excrement. And then another thing that is being told in that uh, Talmud, the ancient Talmud, which doesn't really uh, exist anymore because it was burned after this uh, disputation, uh, the another point it, say, it used to say was that Jesus was a ludicrous student of a Jewish rabbi who would ogle at women. And so he was excommunicated by the rabbi. And to take revenge, he began bad-mouthing Judaism and was always on the lookout to spite rabbis. 
and uh, so i mean uh, after that all the entire manuscripts of the talmud were taken and they were burnt around 12000 manuscripts and that ancient uh, manuscripts don't survive anymore they've completely uh, so a lot of disputations went on again disputation of barcelona disputation of tortosa and then uh, there was a bloodiest pogrom of jews by uh, you know the shiraz blood libel by the uh, islamists so um, this is uh, something that i wanted to know that these are some ancient uh, i mean examples where they mentioned jesus uh, in these books so that's a really good question that's an excellent question so uh, i'll i'll combine a set of texts right you know one is the talmudic collection okay so so the talmudic collections do talk about jesus and like you correctly said uh, some of them are the ancient and some of those are um, you know uh, uh, copies that were written a few centuries later a few centuries later so we do not know uh, how many of those are embellishments that we do not know but also equally important is uh, one of the early texts that were written that was written by the jews it's called uh, toledo issue so then uh, this text tells a very interesting story okay so a lot of the things that you summarized right that jesus was illegitimate son of uh, the roman legend pantera and then mary the two had an affair and then that's how he was born and the story is very interesting right initially according to the story uh, mary is betrothed okay she is engaged to a rabbi by the name yohanan and then this yohanan is a very learned man and he's a rabbi and then one day he comes home and then you know he uh, finds uh, you know um, that mary and uh, uh, pantera uh, you know are having an affair and then uh, he divorces her okay he calls off the engagement right and then so there are some of these very interesting stories you find okay similarly in toledo teshu there is also another story which is somewhat uh, ribald but also uh, very interesting how it tells us how the jews were viewing jesus okay so in the story uh, jesus as well as uh, judas okay both go to the sanctum sanctorum of the temple okay they want to learn the secret name of god okay and then uh, judas just memorizes the name jesus writes it down in a parchment and then stitches it into his private parts okay then they come out and then they both get into a fight okay and then uh, this is not a terrestrial fight this is an aerial fight they, they both leap into the air and they start fighting and then they start beating up each other and everything and uh, uh, every time they utter the word of god and uh, then they'll continue fighting the fight goes on for a long time but then uh, you know uh, judas does something uh, unexpected right he catches hold of jesus and sodomizes him in, in mid air fight okay and then uh then not only he doesn't only really stop there then he also uh, urinates into the mouth of jesus and according to some translations he defecates into the mouth of jesus during the aerial fight and then jesus falls down right so and then because you know sodomy is considered a graves in in the biblical world view and then jesus is now considered a sinner he falls down now the interesting thing is what we do not know is whether these stories preceded the new testament accounts or they were a response to that okay and most of the scholars think they are a response to that because the new testament was very anti semitic okay and then uh, you know it uh, uh, led to effectively a rejection of the jewish religion and then the vilification of the jewish people and then the jews 
began getting even okay and then the only way they could do that was because uh, from at least in the time of constantine you know he uh, christianity was the official religion okay there was no question of Christi criticizing christianity from that point onward but even before that why did constantine become a christian he became a christian because christianity was very prevalent in the eastern empire right that's the reason he converted to christianity so kings follow the religion of their subjects it's not the other way around okay so and hence even in the earlier parts i don't think the jews could have openly criticized um, christianity or jesus in the eastern part of the empire so what they do is they come up with these literary devices such as writing these uh, stories like toledo teshu and uh, criticizing jesus but what they tell us is uh from the very early days the perception of jesus that the christians carried and the perception about jesus that non christians carried i cited some examples from celsus and a lot of others and then you brought up the example of the uh, talmudic jews and the rabbis they are very very opposite of one another okay so the christians had a positive view of jesus but non christians had a very negative view of jesus whether he was a historical character or not the story that was told was a very negative one uh thank you very much um, excellent talk um, in many parts i know it must have looked uh, stupid for people who saw that i was laughing that's primarily because often even online and offline when i hear people praising this religion i do think of all these things and laugh because some of it was was known to me uh my question actually which i had put in the chat box was with regard to the conversion of the blacks in america who came as slaves who were brought as slaves rather um and were converted to christianity over time do they i mean how is it that they remained christian knowing fully well what the bible actually talks about slavism the slavery about how it endorses all those passages still exist they've not been taken out how it endorses uh, slavery how it looks down on people of uh, you know um, black skin coloring how is it that they continue to remain christian despite all that's happening despite knowing that the christianity is the basis of the racism which actually they experienced till date their ancestors experienced and they experienced today but they still continue to be christian many of them in america are pretty uh, you know uh, very very religious uh, christians in fact you know so right. how is it that that continues how is it that they are able to continue with this uh, sort of fiction and keep them there as christians where they have not there's it's, just it's, i think a, a small really section question. there's a small yeah. section i know which did become muslim i know that a small right. section of the blacks but it's still a small bit so what are your views on how is it that they are able to stay there because it beats my understanding that is it's a, it's a great question i want to kind of start with your first remark right a lot of things in christianity sound very strange and very funny right i want to start with that remark and then i'll answer your question on blacks still remaining christians right so the first one uh, you know bartimaeus talks about uh, different christian traditions that existed in the first three centuries and one of those is uh, a sect called the fibionites and then how they celebrated the eucharist okay so eucharist among them was extremely strange okay so you know they christians came together as a group okay they'll meet in a house or something it was a secret gathering and then they would uh, masturbate okay and then sh share the semen among each and every one of them calling it the body of christ okay so eucharist all about the body of christ which, which is a cracker and then the blood of christ which is wine okay so then they distributed the semen Uh, from men to everyone as the body of christ and then there was also blood of christ okay if some woman was menstruating then her blood was collected and distributed to all the other christians as the blood of christ okay so now this may sound very strange or even revolting to most of us but this is some of the earliest christian belief so 
whenever christians talk about eucharist blood of christ body of christ and all that symbolism and tell them hey this is what bot herman has revealed that in the earliest time uh, your body of christ was not a cheap cookie and your blood of christ was not some cheap wine it was actually the semen and the menstrual blood that were distributed among the earliest christians anyway now to your question on why the blacks have not abandoned christianity even though christianity is the direct reason for their enslavement because uh, christianity taught that the black skin is cursed and then uh, jesus justified slavery and then he expected the slave to be obedient and that's why in the 19th century uh, reverend fred ross wrote a book called christianity sorry slavery ordained of god okay because that's how christians defended it christians repeatedly and correctly argued that uh, slavery is ordained of god and jesus sanctified it and who are you to change it okay that was the argument okay so when so christianity has been the primary reason for the enslavement of the blacks and the sustenance of that slavery and the terrible conditions they had to suffer okay and uh, they continue to suffer even today and uh, why have they not abandoned reason number one okay they were forced to convert and remember uh, their family system was destroyed because the protestant christianity would not recognize their marriage okay so if how do we raise our children you know we educate them we tell them about religion we tell them about other things we educate them okay language everything okay and if our children could be forcibly taken away from us and sold into slavery thousands of miles away then the propagation of the knowledge comes to an end okay that's number one okay then number two uh, there was a complete loss of everything that would have been part of black heritage okay their language okay their languages were all destroyed okay we do not know what languages they spoke they were all destroyed okay then uh, uh professor uh, lucas gates at harvard there's a really good video also called black in south america but you should also black in latin america uh, it's on netflix i think but there are also a lot of books and articles he has written you should read his books he uh, points out uh, something really interesting right he talks about the survival of the voodoo religion among the haitian black community okay so the haitian blacks have uh, or kind of an isolate okay because they are predominantly black community and then they have preserved their voodoo religion okay but for the most part their religions were crushed okay violently crushed by the christians okay and then they were forcibly converted to christianity okay and when this happens for a few generations you know you don't have a family that can tell you look this is not our tradition and let's keep this alive that's what we hindus did right when we are subjugated and when hindus are taken as bonded laborers to the caribbean to south africa and other places they were able to preserve their family okay because unlike in the protestant america the family was not destroyed okay they were treated terribly but our people could carry a ramayana with them and then they could teach their children okay they kept it alive blacks were not given that opportunity at all okay christians were criminal to the bone to the bone marrow and then they took everything away from the black people so when a few generations of blacks had been raised only in christianity only speaking english okay and knowing nothing about their african heritage okay they are not going to challenge it okay we are not going to challenge it if we had been uh, you know put through the same experience and then what also happens today is in a way uh, it's an interesting dilemma right because christianity is a congregational religion okay and then blacks congregate in black churches okay there are white so christianity in america is more segregated okay there are white churches there are hispanic churches there are black churches and everything right asian churches and blacks congregate there and today 
<clears throat> they don't have any other institution. Okay, that's where they come together. Okay, and then build their community. So, one form or other, it does become a necessity for them. So, Christianity is what caused their destruction, but Christianity is all they have today. Okay, that's the reason they are remaining Christians. But I think, unless they come out of Christianity, this is something I've written about a lot of times. Because unless they come out of Christianity and explore their own heritage, okay, they cannot uplift themselves. Okay, the reason for that is uh, most of the time. we do better right not because uh, you know um, for example we'll find a lot of hindu families the parents are never educated for example 1947 uh, just 13% 13% of indians were literate okay literacy means you can sign your name it does not mean you could read anything complex or you had the functional uh, literacy skills to gain whatever knowledge was uh, required to survive in the new emerging world none of those things it just meant you could sign your name in other words practically every indian was illiterate okay but in a matter of few decades many of us could come out of that and say look even though my parents my grandparents have been completely illiterate and then they didn't have any skills to survive in the world i am going to acquire those skills and we came out of that but you come out of that only because your self worth had not been taken away from you okay and then you always saw yourself as someone who has inherited the great legacy of hindu dharma okay running you know going back 3000 4000 5000 years ago and then uh, you view yourself as an inheritor of the tradition so it's possible for you to come back okay and then it's possible for you to nurture and you have the family system intact whereas uh, for the black people uh, that tradition was destroyed now there is a compelling reason to tell them uh, that they did have a heritage you know going back 2000 3000 4000 years ago in africa and that's not something they had to be ashamed of that's something they can be proud of they should be proud of and the number two is to revive their family system unfortunately everything that happens in the united states is activism and activism of every form in my opinion is harmful okay because at the end of the day there are no shortcuts in life okay if you want your child to become a good you know uh, uh, biochemist the only way it happens is you know study for 12 years in school then another four years in college then do your masters and your phd work really hard there's no no shortcut for that okay and then and this happens only when the family nurtures okay the family should make sacrifice for the next generation that's what we all did that's what our parents did that's what our grandparents did that's why if you find a large number of indians sitting here in the silicon valley or in wall street or in uh, bangalore or hyderabad and working for uber or google that's the reason okay our parents and our Uh, grandparents made sacrifices for the next generation so whereas the black family system has been terribly destroyed uh, because of the legacy of uh, slavery and christian subjugation and there is a crying need to rebuild all of those things so that the black community can enjoy the same fruits of earthly existence like all of us and it starts with getting rid of christianity but you know it has to happen it has not happened uh my question is i read somewhere that the christianity preached by paul is different from the christianity which was followed by the rest of the uh, predecessor or uh, his contemporaries um, uh, at that time i think christianity was meant for a selected set of people or selected set of community whereas paul was the one who has brought it to everyone across so could you please uh, explain or help us thank you that's another very good question uh, so uh, in fact this is an argument that's nicely made by Uh, the american philosopher alfred north whitehead okay so effectively i'm just paraphrasing his words uh, you know he writes that uh, 
and and by the way alfred north whitehead uh, was not only a philosopher he was also a mathematician and he also uh, had a good knowledge of uh, hindu philosophical systems including the vedanta <clears throat> and he has written a lot about that and he put forth the argument that uh, paul pretty much inverted what jesus had taught okay he makes a dichotomy between the two okay so now if you take the jesus of the new testament and what he taught and what paul teaches uh, in his epistles and acts and other thing you find a difference okay the first one uh, if you take matthew 5:17 jesus says i have not come here to overturn the law i have come here to fulfill every law unto the last word law is a reference to the jewish bible and the uh, you know the commandments of the bible okay so in other words uh, early christianity of jesus whether he is a mythical figure or historical figure doesn't matter the early christianity is a jewish only religion okay it only appealed to the jews and then there are verses in the bible which say uh, that you know uh, don't take it to non jewish people and i quoted a few of those things don't cast this uh, cast the pearl in front of the swine and all these verses so the non jewish people were seen with contempt and then the early christianity was the jewish sect okay that's what you know the christianity of jesus was okay then Uh, comes the christianity of paul uh, most of the academic scholars would argue that you know the christianity of paul happened within a decade of jesus or a decade or two of jesus uh, but uh, i have challenged that premise in my book uh, mainly based on the work of the german academic hermann bettering uh, who actually in my opinion decisively argues that uh, the historical paul did not exist and uh, uh, what we call the epistles of pauls were written probably 150 years uh, later right so anyway uh, paul comes up with a different form of christianity where he actually rejects the jewish law okay which jesus upheld and he says dietary restrictions you don't need to follow any dietary restrictions okay like uh, kosher restrictions uh, the jews followed and then second thing he says is you don't have to circumcise okay in judaism circumcision was the norm you don't have to circumcise okay then Uh, he comes up with all of these things and even very importantly in judaism uh, getting married and having children was an expected norm okay and then paul also points out better not to get married and if at all you marry then it's only for begetting a child so in other words you know uh, you get married only because you don't have self control and you may end up fornicating and hence you do that so that is the difference between the history of paul sorry the christianity of paul and the christianity of jesus but i want to kind of make an important distinction it's not just only two strands of christianity existed okay in the first four centuries uh, when you read bartherman what you get is there were diverse streams of christianity you had gnostic christianities okay i quoted the example of the fibionites and a few others then you know there were uh, numerous other christianities you find some of those from the qumran uh, scrolls the dead sea the dead sea scrolls of christianity and uh, so on and so forth so in the first 3 to 4 centuries you find uh multiple competing christianities some of them gnostic some of them uh what we would today call orthodox and then they continue to evolve and then it's only around the 4th century they get crystallized into what we call christianity today uh, by getting rid of a lot of other competing uh, interpretations as heresies for example the arian interpretation uh, uh constantine was baptized by the arian right and then uh, uh, by an arian priest so the arian Uh, christianity was considered a heresy was declared a heresy in the 4th century so these things happen yes so your uh, the answer to your question is 
uh, there is a difference between the Pauline Christianity because it is taken to the pagan people, to the Gentile people, and then it actually inverts and rejects a lot of the core uh, biblical laws that are upheld by the Jewish uh, people. Whereas uh, the Christianity of Jesus, whether it was mythical or historical, uh, upholds the Jewish uh, law, and then uh, it is only meant for the Jewish people. Uh, two questions. One is. No, you have perhaps read the book on psychology of prophetism by Herman Somers, translated by Elst. And uh, there uh, it indicates that at least the Jesus of the Gospels is a real person. So what's your opinion on that? Uh, and the other question is, uh, beyond the Nicene Creed, there have been further philosophical and mystical developments. So Christian uh, Christianity also has the idea of bridal mysticism. Uh, there are people like Meister Eckhart. So uh, how are these developments to be viewed when a Christian comes and tells you that, you know, you just don't restrict yourself to the Gospels and to the Old Testament or the New Testament. I mean, the, uh, any religion evolves. And this is how it has evolved and this is how it continues to evolve. For instance, it's now trying to incorporate even yoga in some form of Christian yoga. What would be your response to all that? So I agree with the question. I mean, it's a... Uh... It's, it's an interesting question for historians. Did Jesus exist or at least to what extent did he exist? To what extent does he satisfy the picture that the Bible has made of him? To what extent is all this invented? So, I mean, it's a good question and I have some ideas about it. But right now I want to hear your version. Thank you. Uh, I think it's a privilege. Uh, uh, Dr. Coindardels is a good friend of mine, but more imp importantly, I consider myself to be a follower of Dr. Els and uh, Sitaram Goyal. And in fact, my book is a Samarpana to Sitaram Goyalji and uh, 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 Dr. Els. So it's absolutely a pleasure to even discuss this book. Okay, so uh, the psychology of prophetism is an absolutely brilliant book. Okay, because why I consider it brilliant? Because it is polemical in a very uh, positive sense okay so it is it's not a crass form of polemicism it is polemical in a very positive sense but more importantly it brings the work of herman somers and uh, uh, from cognitive sciences from psychology to evaluate a phenomenon that's uh, very important right that's something we all need to do because uh, uh, some of the charismatic religions uh, do uh, have, do attract a lot of functional schizotypes. So can, uh, uh, I have made the argument that early Christianity might have attracted a lot of functional schizotypes and hence this is a brilliant uh, line of thinking. So uh, so here is in a gist uh, uh, the summary uh, made by uh, Dr. Elst and uh, uh, Herman Somers and then uh, Elst may kindly correct me if I uh, do not summarize accurately. So the bottom line is there are a lot of uh, sayings and deeds attributed to Jesus. And then when you uh, examine those from the perspective of psychology and psychiatry, uh, what you find is that Jesus uh, was a paraphrenic. Okay, paraphrenia is not identical to schizophrenia, but shares a lot of traits, uh, traits with it. Uh, but one of the important uh, uh, distinctions is uh, uh, an expression of an expression that comes out of sexual repression. Okay, so that's something you find a lot in the words and deeds attributed to Jesus. So he suffered from paraphrenia. And I think this is a very important line of argument. And uh, I think it still remains valid today. And uh, one of that about which I also write in my book, and I've also 
uh, have published an online essay on that could jesus have been psychotic and in that uh, in continuation of the work done by uh, dr riels and uh, uh, somers uh, a team of uh, harvard medical school neuropsychiatrists okay they examine the jesus of the new testament okay and then they don't go into the question of whether he was historical or not and then they examine uh, and then uh, they apply the diag- diagnostic and statistical manual uh, i think it was four they apply and then that's exactly what we do for uh, all the psychiatric illnesses and then they examine and then they come to the conclusion that the jesus of the new testament Uh, could have been psychotic okay uh, they don't necessarily conclude whether he was schizophrenic or paraphrenic because paraphrenia is not uh, one of the classifications in the dsm4 of the us but it is there in the european psychiatric manual uh, but they do conclude that he was psychotic so one thing we can readily agree that if we had to take the words and deeds of jesus in the new testament and then uh, evaluate it objectively using Uh, diagnostic and statistical manual which psychiatrists always do we do have to come to the reasonable conclusion that jesus was uh, psychotic okay whether that psychosis was paraphrenia whether it was schizophrenia uh, we could debate that but we could come to that conclusion now the question is could he have been a mythical figure and could we have still had the same outcomes uh, that's what i have argued in my book i have said uh, early christianity was probably created by a set of functional schizotypes they uh, came together and then they made up a lot of these stories and other things and uh, long story short uh, one could have created these stories and attributed those either to a historical figure or a mythical figure so for example there could have been a historical jesus but we know almost nothing about him uh, but you know we uh, uh, what we have is a composite figure that has been handed over to us Uh, down the christian traditions that's what we have so uh, hard for us to tell whether we have it so there are some very interesting discussions like bart tierman is um, a very respected academic and uh, he agrees with uh, uh, dr riels uh, uh, premise that there was a historical jesus and then uh, uh, you know uh, most of the uh, teachings are best explained by accepting that there was a historical jesus and then there was a composite that emerged out of that okay so then the alternative viewpoint comes from a uh, few others uh, for example robert price uh, richard carrier and a lot of other academics so, you know they are called the mythicists and then i also cited the examples of alan dundas and a few others and they have uh, come up with an alternative viewpoint which is uh, you know uh, it does not necessitate a historical jesus you could have had all of these things the mythical character too. uh that's the answer to the first question and uh, i'll pause here before i take your take up your second question dr else would you like to comment on that would you like to uh, add more insights to that first response yeah no i mean you you said uh, what is important in this discussion huh? so um we can indeed argue about what exactly ailed a certain character that we've ended up calling christ uh, what ailed him mentally but you know clearly there's there's a story to be told there and so in my opinion you can hardly explain the whole story without starting with a historical figure who was by far not that important and who was a little bit mentally impaired so that at least he was interesting you see people cared to tell stories about him but then the story became far more uh charged with 
with philosophical contents that was later imposed on it with imitation of pagan deities dying and resurrected and so on. But that's not historical, of course. But there must have been a historical character, not too clear, not too defined, but clearly mentally not very stable. And so on top of that very little historical core, you get the whole edifice of Christian teachings. Thank you. I think that's a very reasonable argument. And uh, uh, that's why I've been kind of very open to the possibility of, uh, you know, a historical core Jesus with all the accretions on top of that over centuries. And also at the same time, uh, could it have been a mythical Jesus? I've been open to both possibilities. And uh, I do find compelling arguments from uh, uh, both sides. And uh, uh, even though I lean more towards a mythical Jesus, uh, uh, personally, uh, but I do recognize that both of those are uh, very legitimate lines of argument that we should pursue. You know, a religion, uh, whether it's Christianity, whether it's Islam or any religion, uh, cannot be frozen in a point in time, especially in a world where you are working. So, for example, there was a flow of lot of ideas, uh, especially Vedanta, Buddhism, and lot of ideas, yoga, and other things that started happening from India. Uh, to the Arab world and then to Europe. Okay, starting this starts from the 8th, 9th century onwards. For example, there's a famous story of Al Hajjaj, right? And Al Hajjaj, uh, you know, he starts as a uh, as a Muslim uh, uh, theologian. Then he travels to India and then he studies some of this Vedanta and other things. Then he goes back uh, wearing a loin cloth and then uh, he uh, makes proclamations. Uh, very similar to, you know, Aham Brahmasmi kind of proclamation. So right? that's debatable. Uh, but, you know, uh, in some form or fashion, definitely he brings these ideas back, right? So so from that period onwards, uh, Europe and, uh, uh, you know, uh, uh, the Arab world have been exposed to ideas from Hinduism, Buddhism, and in general, uh, Eastern ideas. Okay, uh, So to some extent, uh, that influence is not going to be uh, happening uh, in in uh, in watertight compartments, right? So that influence that influence is going to uh, permeate and it's going to flow through. So it happened. So so what you find is uh, like Meckart, uh, you know, uh, uh, Eckhart is one example you uh, mentioned. There are a few others that happens over the next few centuries, and then uh, those changes happen. And even you know, centering prayer is another example I discuss in my book. Uh, these are borrowed from uh, Eastern religions, and then they try to incorporate. However, the Core challenge is this, right? Uh, a small fringe of Christians may take to these practices and uh, are they influential enough? They are not, okay? Because they don't run the mega churches. They don't run the Christian institutions. And the Christian institutions and the churches are all uh, extremely uh, uh, what you can call orthodox. Orthodox meaning... Uh, so, uh, you know, what we find is uh, the mainstream Christianity is very literal, okay? It takes to... Uh, the Bible, the 66 or 73 books, depending on the denomination you are in, and a very literalist, uh, literalist interpretation, and uh, uh, with the proclamation that Jesus is the only Savior, and you know it comes from the Gospel of John, right? I am, uh, I and the Father of are one, and nobody goes to Father except through me. All of these teachings are what shape uh, the thinking and the worldview of a vast majority of Christians, and if. Uh, Christianity were really fluid, right? Like Hinduism or Buddhism or anything. And if it had uh, really evolved and a large number of Christians had embraced uh, these meditative techniques and philosophical 
uh, inquiries and other things, then we won't be at all alarmed by Christianity. The truth is, those people constitute a small fringe of Christianity, and most of them are uh, highly liberal. Uh, and I don't even believe many of them are Christians to begin with, right? And they had lost interest in Christianity, and then they are just not letting go of it fully. That's it. So uh, that's why I think uh, while some evolution happens, it's the extent to which it happens and the extent to which it permeates uh, uh, Christian society. And that's very minimal.